Professor Kim, and I am here to teach you art history. This is art history lesson one about what is art and what is life, part one. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. That was a clip from a series of video art history lessons taught by Professor Kim Il-sun. Professor Kim is a North Korean representational painter, and in this series, her target audience, her students, is fellow North Koreans. She speaks directly to the camera, in English subtitled in Korean, wearing a traditional white hanbok, her head crowned with a garland of flowers. The flowers are not traditional. They are a Snapchat filter. And in the other videos in this series, Professor Kim appears with kitty cat ears and whiskers to teach you about feminist art. You never know, Professor Kim might be a gorilla girl. Or as a mouse with glasses to talk about art and technology. Each episode is about 10 minutes long and takes you on a whirlwind tour through the work of five to 10 artists who are grouped thematically. Professor Kim's manner is that of a kind preschool teacher. She speaks slowly and gently, articulating her words. She asks a lot of questions of the viewer, and at the end of each lesson, she gives an assignment. You can make art. You can find an object today and call it art. Put it on a pedestal, turn it around, and sign it with something else. See what happens. It's your first assignment. There's another thing you should know about Kim Il-sun, which is that she is not real. I mean, she's real in the same way Borat is real or Chris Gaines is real, which is to say she's a character, an artist and professor who is the alter ego of another artist and professor. My name is Mina Chun, and my Korean name is Chun Min Jung. I am currently in Baltimore, Maryland, because I teach at the Maryland Institute College of Art. And I work between Baltimore, New York, and Seoul, South Korea. Mina's series, Video Art History Lessons by Professor Kim, is being shown as part of the first Asia Society Triennial, which is up until June 27th at the Asia Society Museum in Manhattan. She recorded this video series as a work of art, but also she legitimately is trying to teach North Koreans about contemporary art. The goal is to make modern and contemporary art digestible and understandable within North Korea, that there are government-sanctioned methods of creating art, which is, you know, obviously the strict propaganda style, social realist work, socialist realist work. It is very restrictive and they do not, North Koreans don't have access to these other ideas and, and the other types of contemporary art that's out there. So by creating a series of video art history lessons by Professor Kim and sending them into North Korea, uh, for several years now, actually, either through USB drives or SD cards or other media carriers, 
it allows for those receiving them to access something that was actually uniquely artistically created for them. I got on the phone with Mina after having watched several of her Professor Kim videos, and it was really cognitively dissonant for me. Like, if you watched a bunch of Pee Wee's Playhouse and then you met Paul Rubens and he was like, Sup, bro? Professor Kim is this sing-songy, slow-talking preschool teacher, and Mina is not that. She's brassy and cerebral, and her concepts are going like 100 miles an hour and try to keep up. I asked her about why she felt moved to split herself into these two very different women as part of her art practice. If you're a Korean, you know that you either are related to somebody from North Korea you grow up hearing all sorts of, you know, stories about family separation and uh, the devastation, and it carries on with you. At some point, I really, really started thinking about myself as a Korean diaspora artist and my Korean-American identity, Korean-Korean identity, and all this kind of extended cultural clashing of worlds. And thinking really deeply about what it means to be Korean today and of the country being split the way it is. You know, it made sense to practice in two sort of modes. One as a South Korean new media artist, Mina Chan, and then also as a North Korean Kim Il-sun, who is my alter ego. And I have to say between uh, Mina Chan and Kim Il-sun, the kind of work that's been coming out has been very blurred, blurred in boundaries, but always sort of moving towards protesting or promoting global peace and unification and allowing that to be her voice. I visited North Korea in 2004. And um, I was able to travel there, interact with North Koreans. It felt very familiar and familial. But ever since I went there, my efforts to communicate with North Koreans, which I believe, you know, North Koreans are extended family, have been a goal of mine as an artist. After World War II, Korea was divided along the 38th parallel. The Soviet Union occupied the North and the U.S. occupied the South. The North invaded the South in 1950, seeking to reunify the Korean peninsula under one rule, and the ensuing conflict lasted for three years. So if you're in your 70s, you remember a unified Korea, and if you're Mina's age, your parents remember a unified Korea. But if you're younger than that, things start to get a little distant. If you're a South Korean three or four generations removed from the Korean War, Maybe you don't think of North Koreans as your long-lost cousins. Maybe you think of them as backwards, or part of the axis of evil, or just kind of irrelevant to your life. Maybe you don't get why reunification should be a goal at all. Why would you want to share a country with people you don't have a relationship with or affection toward? Which is why Crash Landing on You was so important. Crash Landing on You is a South Korean television series, a K-drama, for those of you in the know, that aired in late 2019, early 2020. It's on Netflix right now and is extremely bingeable. Highly recommend. In a nutshell, here's the plot. 
A wealthy South Korean heiress, materialistic but with a heart of gold, goes paragliding, as you do, but suddenly she's swept up in a tornado. And when she awakes, she is not in Kansas anymore. She's in North Korea. She's discovered dangling from a tree by a North Korean military officer, stern but with a heart of gold. And you guessed it, they eventually fall in love. Crash Landing on You was a wildly successful TV show. It's the third highest rated South Korean TV show in history. And it's super interesting because the majority of the show takes place in North Korea. And apparently the depiction of everyday life is quite accurate, from rolling blackouts to random home inspections to scenes that take place in a black market. But from a political perspective, what makes this show so important is that it depicts North Koreans as likable and human and very crushable. And younger South Koreans watched this show in droves. And maybe they absorbed that message. And maybe that means that the desire for unification won't die out with the current generation of leaders. North Koreans, they're just like us. And in the case of the male lead, they have exquisite bone structure. I imagine it's like when Brokeback Mountain came out and straight people were like, Wait a minute. I want to get a beer and or go on a date with these cowboys. And next thing you know, gay people could get married. I'm curious about your family's particular story. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about that? So my mother's story is very unique in that uh, she came down from north all the way to the southern tip of uh, Korea, Busan, through a U.S. steamship. She grew up having, for example, her father crying, so that would be my grandfather, because he had to leave his parents in the north. Just the, the kind of the pains of hearing my mother tell the story about my grandfather, who would be crying and holding the children really tight. And explaining, you know, talking about what it was like to have to leave their parents. You know, you hear the stories of the aunt who during the Korean War had to walk so much that her legs are no longer straight because of all the walking as a child to kind of move away from communism. Or how the brothers of my, you know, uncle on my father's side fought for the North Korean army and then escaped but if you trace the stories and start understanding the history of what Koreans went through, there are all these different uh, levels of trauma that I'm still like, you know, thinking about and it still affects me. Mina's mother and my mother, it turns out, were born in the same year. And my mom and her family fled the communists as well, but in China instead of Korea. My grandfather was working for the nationalist government, and so when Mao came to power, they had to get the hell out of Dodge. All the way to Texas, in fact. My mother was almost left behind in China because she was a girl, but last minute, they decided to bring her. Do you remember the first time that you personally had a chuckle pie? Yes, I grew up eating chuckle pie. <laughs> it was founded in 1974. I was born in 1973. I grew up eating chocolate pie. I had it my whole life. It's one of those things that tastes, you know, best with coffee. So as a college student, you know, you have chocolate pie for, you know, lunch with your coffee or something. Chocolate pies, which are sort of like what we call moon pies in America, feature prominently in Mina's work. It's 
choco pie. Do you like choco pie? I love choco pie. The piece is called Eat Choco Pie Together. 10,000 choco pie was installed in an exhibition called Choco Pie Propaganda. I was the artist because as Professor Kim, I also make artwork sometimes. And I was able to show 10,000 choco pie at the Ethan Cohen Gallery in New York. And by eating choco pie together, we were able to become one and unified. 10,000 choco pies were laid on the floor for the audience to eat so they could understand that there is existing love between the Koreas and also, you know, the taste and desire of North Koreans. Like that was sort of the goal and it did have some really good response. By the time it went to Busan Biannual, uh, the exhibition had a 100,000 chocolate pies for the audience to eat for the three months period at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Busan. And that was dedicated to North Korean defectors around the world. It was a huge sensation. Um, and the Korean President Moon Jae-in came and ate choco pie and then flew to Pyongyang and went to Pekdo Mountain, you know, with Kim Jong-un the next day. This was 2018. He carried your choco pie in his body to North Korea. <laughs> yes, he did. Thank you for the ultimate, that. The ultimate smuggling. <laughs> <laughs> so true. And that choco pie was supposed to be uh, for the Asia Society Triennale in the shape of the peninsula, the unification flag, be at Lincoln Center for the opening, the you know opening vernissage of the Trian Asia Society Triennale. But because of the pandemic, everything's postponed. So in the meantime, we created an online eatchocopietogether.com that you could still access. And basically, you send a choco pie design that I created, which is like unity, love, peace, you know, all these good stuff. And then you can send it to a friend or a loved one with a sweet message. The digital project is cool. Again, that URL is eatchocopietogether.com. But it's not, of course, the same as actually eating a choco pie. So if you're sitting at home and you don't have an H Mart in your neighborhood, but you really want to experience the flavor sensation that is a choco pie, what do you do? I am Christina Che. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a food editor at Bon Appetit. I am also someone who grew up in a Korean-American household where there were just there was just no end to uh, packaged snacks, such as choco pie. But like, how would you describe your relationship to choco pies? Like, does it loom large in your childhood memory? It's funny. Choco pies is super iconic, I feel. You know, like if you're Korean, like you know what it is. It's like an Oreo or something. They're individually wrapped little cakes, you know, comprised of a sort of dry sponge cake layer topped with a delightfully 
rubbery kind of marshmallow layer. And then all of that is enveloped in like a chocolate shell. I feel like it's easiest to describe them as being something akin to a Malomar, which is funny because I definitely did not know what a Malomar was for a long time. I mostly remember eating them and thinking that one was never enough. I would eat one kind of like as my snack, but then I would eat another one as like my secret snack, as in <laughs> I would make sure that my mom wasn't watching me eat the second one. Right. What do you think the best way to replicate that experience with maybe pantry items would be? Oh, that's such a good question. I'd probably go buy a cake um, or a mini cake from like a, a sort of mediocre bakery. Is the mediocrity of that bakery important? So important. Okay. No, no exquisite cakes allowed. <laughs> you have to have unity with others who are suffering through the drive. And so I guess I would punch out like a round from the cake. And then I would be doing this a day in advance because I'd want the cake to sit out. Oh, that's key. A little bit. That's very key. <laughs> so I would microwave a marshmallow on a plate for like 15 seconds on high just until it gets uh, like a bit amorphous and blobby and huge. And then put that on top of my dried out cake round. And then I would probably cover all that in honestly like some freaking magic shell maybe you also need to be um like once it's done you need to like crinkle a wrapper of some kind in your hand just to complete the sensorial experience of unwrapping the individually wrapped choco pie i think you're right there is really something to the sensory experience of opening that little gift yeah it's a tiny present each time when was the last time you had one well that's the thing is i I think I've had one because they would have been around in like Chinese markets as well. Like Chinese markets always have like a selection of Japanese and like Korean and, you know, like pan Asian treats. Um, mm -hmm. So I can I have like a memory of eating something that sounds like a choco pie, probably at my grandparents house. But it also sounds like, you know, in doing research that every culture kind of has their own choco pie. Hashtag my choco pie. Choco pie. Dost hum to life awesome. Choco pie kung Orion, va Orion kung na choco pie. Lottie choco pie, dunya bhar mein sab ka favorite. Ab Pakistan mein bhi. Like there's a moon pie in the U.S. There's a Mexican version. Um, so Ooh. now I'm left wondering, like, is there also a Chinese version of choco pie that I don't know about, or did I actually have one? Yeah. Have you asked your mom about it? I haven't. I should. Moms always know. I also wanted to hear your thoughts about the triennial, the triennale, um, in light of the Atlanta shootings, but also the larger spate of Asian hatred and violence that we've seen recently. And I'm curious about what your experience has been to have, you know, this first show of its kind happening right now. So... Asia Society of Chanale, the title is We Do Not Dream Alone, and Hoon Hui Tan and Michelle Yoon, uh, Mapplethorpe had kind of co-curated a vision of sharing sort of Asian criticality. Talk to me about what that means, Asian criticality. What's the intention there? It's like a contemporary uh, criticality of like taking all the kind of stereotypes and all the 
generalization of what Asia is today, as well as responding to the general like understanding of the visual aesthetics of what is Asia, you know, whether it's very contemplative or, you know, Zen always comes up, this like notion of emptiness or, you know, whatever, like those more assumed Asian look or taste or whatever it is, you know, that has been aspirational for Westerners to think that it's more Eastern. They have taken artists who really address what matters to Asians right now. A lot of the artists just kind of punch right through some of these uh, stereotypical issues of, you know, what is contemporary Asia? What is contemporary Asian art? What kind of artwork needs to come from these Asians to be marketed or bracketed, you know, Asian and so forth. And so my work to be placed in this context, I just felt like, wow, I'm amongst Asians. This is the easiest, best, you know, kind of work that I want to be doing. I don't have to explain anything. We started working on this episode weeks before the Atlanta massacre that left six Asian American women dead. Four were Korean and two were Chinese. In the days that followed, a lot of my non-Asian friends reached out and extended their support. But perhaps unsurprisingly, the morning after the shootings, the first people who texted, hey, checking in on you, were other Asian women. It's like Mina said, we didn't have to explain anything. We didn't have to contextualize this specific act of sexualized violence against Asian women within an entire history of sexualized violence against Asian women. One of the things that we spoke of was the invisibility of Asians in America. To me, there's two ways that Asians are perceived. If you're a woman between, say, 15 and 60, you're sexualized and fetishized. If you're anyone else, a man or a child or an older woman, you're invisible. Maybe this is because so many of us are foreign-born. In 2015, six out of 10 Asian Americans were born outside the U.S. And the way many of our immigrant parents and grandparents got by was by keeping their heads down and not raising a fuss. Better to be invisible than targeted, like the Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, or like Vincent Chin, who was beaten to death in 1982 by two white auto workers who were angry about the rise of Japanese car manufacturing. Which is why the timing of the Asia Society Triennial is remarkable. It's been in the works for years, so this is not some reactionary show inspired by hashtag Stop Asian Hate. But the Triennial, which showcases the work of over 40 Asian artists, represents a refusal to be invisible, and the messages it sends are more salient than ever. Asian art is living. It's not just Ming vases and lacquerware. It is diverse, because Asia is not a monolith. It's a whole flippin' continent. And Asian voices are here, always have been. And it's time to pay attention to what we're saying. The Asia Society Triennial, including Nina Chun's video Art History Lessons by Professor Kim, runs until June 27th. 